0: Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to 2 Corinthians as we get back in our series this morning on 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 10, Christian battling, Christian battling and we'll read the whole chapter and also I want to ask you to go ahead and uh, find Ephesians chapter 6 because later on in the context of the message we will be uh, in that passage as well. While you find your place in your copy of God's Word, I would like to invite you uh, to take out your messenger this morning and look at the front page of your newsletter, and uh, also that little insert inside. Uh, Today, the third Sunday in January, uh, for 42 years now, uh, Southern Baptists have recognized the sanctity of life Sunday. You say, why do we celebrate it the third Sunday uh, in January? Uh, we do so because the third Sunday coincides the best with uh, the uh, Roe v. Wade decision that was made back in 1973. Uh, the Supreme Court handed down that decision on January 22nd. And so that's why every year in January, the third Sunday, we recognize. Uh, the sanctity of human life. And uh, as believers, we we pray that the abortion industry might come to an end uh, in this country. Uh, You can look at this insert, and if you'll turn it over and look at some of the statistics uh, on the back side of that insert, uh, folks, it's pretty disturbing. Uh, One in three women in America in their lifetime will have an abortion there are some areas of the world where abortions every year outnumber the number of births Uh, such a tragedy and uh, the babies aren't the only ones to suffer we know from 2011 uh, the British did a massive study about the effects of abortion on women And found out that a woman having an abortion is 110 times more likely to abuse alcohol. 155 times uh, more likely to commit suicide. And so many tragic effects of the abortion industry. I want to commend those in our church who work over at the Gate uh, Pregnancy Center. Uh, in Harrisburg and the Crisis Pregnancy Center here in Concord and they counsel some of the young women that that come in and they try to make a difference in the lives of those young women and try to help them make decisions uh, to keep their babies and either keep them themselves or put them up for adoption because so many thousands of couples in America every year are on adoption waiting lists. And so keep the baby, and if nothing else, uh, put the baby up for adoption. And so we appreciate those who work in these crisis uh, pregnancy centers. And then you'll notice also in your bulletin this morning that Pam Ford, beginning in February, I believe it's February the 3rd, uh, she will be starting a Bible study for any ladies that you know of, that have experienced abortion, it's, it's called uh, Free and Forgiven. And so, if you know some ladies that that Bible study could help, uh, encourage them to contact uh, Pam Ford. Uh, but again, just wanted to explain to you why the third Sunday in January is so important every year in recognizing this, the Sanctity of Life Sunday, that life is a gift from God. From the moment of conception to death, life is precious. Uh, Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? 2 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away." I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel and lens beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray together. Father, help us to realize that as believers in this world, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. The Bible tells us that we battle not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. And we need to suit up with the armor, the spiritual armor that you give us. Lord, we don't need to retreat in this battle. We need to stand firm in the gospel and be strong in Christ. And be faithful at preaching the gospel and sowing the seed of the good news. Lord, we pray for our strength in this dark world. I pray that as we look around at the events of this world that we would not grow discouraged. But rather, we would use our opportunities as an opportunity to magnify the name of Christ. Lord, I may be speaking to someone this morning who is going through a spiritual battle. They need encouragement this morning. They need to know that their brothers and sisters in the Lord are standing with them and praying for them. And God, I pray that they would realize that even your Holy Spirit is making intercession for them. I pray that you would give them the victory in that battle. And Lord, for those who may not be in your army yet, they've never come to faith in Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would prompt them, even today, to surrender their lives to Him. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Masada is a Jewish fortress on the western shore of the Dead Sea. In fact, on the screens this morning, you'll notice I've I've put a picture of the Fort Masada up there for you to see. A very impressive fort that rises 820 feet above the surrounding valley. And it was used as a stronghold between the years 142 B.C. and 73 A.D. Now, Jonathan Maccabeus, who led the Jews to rebel against Antiochus Epiphanes IV, in the period of time between your Old Testament and New Testament. Judas Maccabeus is the first one to have fortified Masada. And then from 37 B.C. to 31 B.C., Herod the Great made it a monument to his building activity. He turned it into a very elaborate fort, a seemingly impenetrable complex on top of a mountain with steep cliffs in the desert. And and to the fortress aspect of Masada, Herod added royal amenities fit for a king, like a very complex sauna, a heated sauna, Swimming pool, bath houses, theater rooms. Again, he just turned it into a palace on top of a fortress. And then a band of Jewish zealots in resistance to Rome took it over and held it briefly during the revolt against Rome from 66 AD to 73 AD. Now initially, the Romans thought that they could starve the Jews out. When this fell, the 10th legion of the Romans raised an enormous siege ramp and they broke through the walls. Once inside the fort, the Romans found the bodies of over 900 of the Jews, both men, women, and children, who had made a suicide pact with one another to keep the Romans from taking them hostage, torturing them, and turning them into slaves. Well, while destroying things and burning many of the things inside the fortress, the Jewish zealots had purposely not destroyed the food in the storage rooms because they wanted the Romans to know that they had not even come close to starving to death but that instead they refused to be taken alive by the Romans and so they chose rather to die at their own hands. Folks, as you stand there at Masada and you see that massive fortress and that valley below and the Dead Sea there, it helps you to understand a little bit of some of the elaborate links that even men went to in ancient times to prepare themselves for battle. And it helps you to understand, you know, whether it's modern times or ancient times, it really doesn't make a great deal of difference. The history of mankind has been littered with warfare. In fact, when you look at the number of years and decades across written history that have been free from battle, the years free of battle are relatively Few and far between because just about in every year somewhere on the globe battles are breaking out. And you know as I thought about that and thought about this passage this morning. We need to realize that it is not just the world who is engaged in battles. The Bible says that you and I are engaged in spiritual warfare. In fact, the scripture says that we battle not simply against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in high places. Every day we go out into the world to confront a dark world, and it is in that world that you and I are supposed to shine the light of Jesus Christ. Every day we need to put the armor on that God supplies us with. And we need to be ready for spiritual battle. Some of you have been engaged in spiritual battles before. For instance, there may be somebody here this morning that your spouse was against you coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And every day in your marriage or in your home, you have a spiritual battle going on because your mate is not a believer. Or maybe there are parents here that are dealing with a young person in your home who is a a rebel to the Christian faith. And every day and every week you try to sow the seeds of the gospel in that young person's life. Or maybe at work you have been told that you can't keep a Bible there on your desk. It's not allowed in your workplace. And so you know what it is to engage in spiritual warfare and some of you are experiencing that even today. Well folks, this morning what I want us to look at is the attitudes and the weapons that you and I have at our disposal and that we are to use if we are indeed going to have victory in this battle that we're engaged in as Christians. The first thing I want you to see with me today is Christian weapons. Christian weapons look with me beginning in verse 3 what Paul has to say about this he says for though we walk in the flesh we're not waging war according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now we see in these verses that we walk in the world, but we don't fight like the world. We live in the flesh, but our weapons are not of the flesh. Last week, Connie and I had the opportunity of standing there at the tombs of Abraham and Sarah. We were outside of Hebron, and the local guides told us that out of several hundred thousand visitors that come to Israel every year, they said less than 500 visit this site that you are at today because of the tensions in this area. You see, it's in a Palestinian area, and of course there are these ongoing tensions between the Jews and between the neighboring Palestinians. It was pretty chilling to go down some of the highways in that area and we'd see these large red and white highway signs that would say, danger, you're now entering into Palestinian authority, territory, Israelis enter at the risk to your life. Pretty sobering to see some of that. And when we got to the site, the tomb had been built into a fortress-sized temple uh, by Herod. And one part of those tombs has been overseen by Christians. One part is being overseen by Jews and another part by Muslims. Muslims. Now we entered the site on the Christian and the Jewish side and it struck me that it's such a holy site there was such a large number of young Israeli soldiers with machine guns strapped to their backs. Now of course it was very comforting to know that they were there. But it was sobering at the same time to realize that that while you're standing at one of the sites that is one of the most holy sites in biblical history, you're standing there and there are soldiers with machine guns and heavy weaponry. It's just sobering to be there. And at the checkpoints, these soldiers would get on our bus with machine guns and they would walk down the aisle of the bus and they would look at our our passports and they would crawl up under the bus and they would search the bottom of the bus to make sure there weren't bombs there. I told Connie, I don't blame them at all for doing that. I mean, the way people try to drive vehicles in there, car bombs and, and, and bomb them and do all sorts of things like that, it's kind of comforting to know that they were making all of those security checks. But you know, as I thought about that, and I thought about the world and how the world does warfare, I thought about you and I as Christians, we likewise are engaged in spiritual warfare. And our weapons are not knives and guns and bombs, but our weapons are the, is the armor that God has given us. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me over to Ephesians 6 a moment to see what Paul says about this. And look at verse 12. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Now folks I want you to look at that list of armor a moment that Paul is talking about. He's telling us that every day as believers... When we get up and we get ready in the morning we need to realize that in addition to putting on our normal clothes it's like spiritually we need to be thinking in terms uh, of being soldiers for Jesus Christ and clothing ourselves with spiritual armor. And I want you to notice what is first. What is first is that belt of truth that would hold the the, the soldiers uh, uniform together and they would hang things off of that belt that belt was very crucial to them and then there's the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the shoes shed with the, prepara- uh, 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 with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God all of these pieces of armor that you and I have But what I want us to do is just focus in on one of those a moment this morning. As it ties in with 2 Corinthians 10. Look at that last thing that he mentions. He mentions prayer. That after we put on all this armor, after we suit up, we need to pray at all times, in all situations, for all the saints. Folks, it is critical that in spiritual warfare you and I stay in contact with our commanding officer. Amen? We've got to stay in contact with God. After all, He's the one that gives us our directions and our marching orders. As Christians, you and I every day need to be men and women of prayer in this spiritual warfare that we're engaged in. That is a weapon that God has given us to live in this present darkness. We need to be men and women of prayer. Do we realize the strength and the direction that we will gain through prayer. Do we realize how important prayer is? We need to be men and women of prayer. You know what I think of? I think of, of that battle that was going on. If you were to turn and read, don't, don't do so at this, uh, at this time. You can do that this afternoon. But if you were to turn to 2 Corinthians, uh, uh, excuse me, 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings 6, we would see a battle going on between the Syrians or the Arameans, as they were called, and Israel. And you'll recall from that text, the Syrians were going up to do battle against the the Israelites. And every time the Syrians got ready to do something, the Jews knew what they were getting ready to do. And they would be one step ahead of them. And finally the king of the Arameans got his his troops together and he said, Guys, who is a betrayer in our ranks? Who is on the other side? And they said, Nobody, king. But what you need to realize is that there is a prophet in Israel and the very things that you whisper in your bedroom, the prophet shouts to the king of Israel and lets him know and so the king of Israel said well come on guys let's go find that prophet because we're going to kill him because we're not going to be able to win this battle against Israel if the king knows everything we're doing because he's being told by Elisha and so the king of Syria got his army together and they went down to Dothan a place called Dothan because that's where Elisha was And Elisha's servant gets up the next morning, walks out of the house, and as he walks out of the house, what's he see? He sees all around the the army of Syria. And he's scared. He goes back in and tells Elisha that Benadad and his troops are there to get him. And, And Elisha says, Don't worry, because there are more with us than are with them. And that servant goes and looks again. He's like, Master, I don't see anybody. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. And the servant went back out and looked. And he saw flaming chariots all around and the Syrians taking flight. Spiritual warfare and prayer. I think also of when Jesus came down from the the Mount of Transfiguration. He had Peter and James and John with him. And when they got down off the Mount of Transfiguration, you'll recall what those other disciples down there had been trying to do. There was a young demon-possessed boy, and the parents were appealing to the disciples to drive that demon out, and they could not. And then they made their appeal to Jesus, and Jesus cast the demons out of that boy. And the, and the parent, I mean the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, why couldn't we do that? And you remember what Jesus told them, right? This kind comes out by what? Prayer and fasting. Prayer. And then Joshua and the children of Israel, they're crossing the Jordan and they're going in the Old Testament and they're going into the promised land. They come to Jericho. And what do they do? Do they take out their swords and their shields and their bow and arrows? Do they take out all the weapons of the world? And do they go to battle against Jericho that way? No. What do they do? They march around the city seven times and they pray. By the way, the old city of Jericho is only 10 acres. You put a wall around Pitts Baptist Campus and that's the size of the old city of of Jericho. They march around that city seven times and they pray and the walls come tumbling down. Did they have to fight the battle? No. Who fought the battle for them? God did. Folks, do we realize that in spiritual warfare, you and I are supposed to pray. We are supposed to put things in God's hands and let God go to work on situations. Amen? Some of you have fought like that. You faced things in your life you couldn't do anything about and you just put it in God's hands and over time you saw God doing His work. Some of you perhaps have read the the books on marriage by Dr. Ed Wheat. He was a general practitioner and he and his wife were unbelievers. He came to faith in Jesus Christ. She didn't. And when he came to faith in Jesus Christ, there there was a wall between them. Between not only her but their three daughters, they rejected him. They were very cold to him, very cold to his faith. And he turned it over to God in prayer. And he would pray and he would go to them and nothing. He would pray and go to them and nothing. Pray and go to them and nothing. And finally, over time, things began, attitudes began to change. It wasn't long before he saw his wife come to faith in Jesus too. And then there was a special bond between the two of them. They were both Christians now. And they've gone on to write material uh, about Christian marriage together. Look what God did in Dr. Wheat's life simply through prayer. And folks, that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about spiritual weapons, Christian weapons that the world knows nothing about. But you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to know about these spiritual weapons. Now the Corinthians wanted to know why Paul seemed so weak. Remember what had happened there at Corinth. False teachers had come in and were trying to turn the Corinthians against the Apostle Paul. The false teachers valued appearances. They valued what looked like power and prestige and human strength. And they've been saying to the Corinthians, this little Paul fellow, you know what? He has no power. He has no strength. In fact, he's rather unimpressive looking. Are you even sure that he can be an apostle of Jesus Christ at all? And Paul responds by saying my weapons are different than the weapons of the world. Our weapons are not of the flesh. Christians don't fight like the people of the world. We have spiritual weapons like prayer. Now let's add to prayer. Because Paul mentions another weapon that we have here. If you look over at verse 5... Paul says he's tearing down strongholds and taking every thought captive to Christ. He says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, Paul confronted the darkness that was in his own culture. He confronted darkness with the truth of God's word. And all you've got to do to see how he did this is is read books like Galatians and Colossians, for instance. Because in Galatians and Colossians both, Paul is engaged in spiritual warfare. Take Galatians, for instance. Paul planted churches there. And then this group of false teachers known as the Judaizers went in there to the churches of Galatia. And they said that this Paul fella has preached to you that you're saved only through Jesus Christ. Galatians said, yeah, that's right. That's what Paul preached. The Judaizers said, well, we're here to tell you that not only do you need faith in Christ, but you also need to keep all of the Mosaic law and you need to be circumcised. You need all of the above to be justified in God's sight. And so Paul wrote to the Galatians to say, Who has bewitched you? Who has so quickly turned you aside from the good news of Jesus Christ that we came preaching to you? And Paul pointed out that nobody can be justified in God's sight through the law. The law just points out our sin. It's a mirror. We need faith in Christ. But do you see what Paul was doing? Paul was laying God's truth down alongside of that situation that was going on there among the Galatian churches. He was confronting the falsehood with what? With his own wisdom? No, with the wisdom of God. He was trying to get them to take every thought captive to Christ. Our culture has erected these strongholds of thinking, worldview, a worldview, for instance. Ways of looking at things. Every culture does this. And what do we need to do? We, We pull down these strongholds by laying God's truth alongside of it. Saying, well, the world says this, but here's what God's word says instead. Just like abortion that I spoke of a moment ago. The abortionist says that baby's not really a baby, just a blob of tissue. Christians come along and say, no, life is precious, it's special. You're created in the image of God from the moment of conception. And in these crisis pregnancy centers, they try to get the girls to have an ultrasound because if they can have an ultrasound, they see that it's not just a blob of tissue. It's a little baby in there moving and sucking its thumb. And they see the truth. The truth. This is a person. That's what Paul is saying here in verse 5. He's trying to do. Let's say for instance a Christian couple can begin to, to work with a rebellious son. And get him to look at his life from God's perspective. God's word. And pretty soon over time hopefully that son starts asking what does God want of me? Those strongholds in his life are being torn down. And he's wanting to know God's will for his life. Folks, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He is fighting battles with spiritual armor. And he's presenting God's truth to pull down the strongholds of Satan's lies. That's Christian warfare. That's how Christians fight. We don't fight with the weapons of the world. We don't fight with the weapons of the flesh. I think of what the Old Testament says not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit saith the Lord. Folks, let's just think of my, a moment about how this has been done in church history. I think about the Reformation. Take, for instance, Martin Luther. At the time of the the Reformation, the church was in such deep, dark trouble. They were in corruption. Not not only theologically had they gone astray from the Scripture, uh, but even morally and ethically, the the church had become such a corrupt place. For instance, the priests were supposed to be celibate. But the bishop started saying, you know what, he can have his mistresses on the side. He just needs to pay the church a tax. We need to make something off of this. So if the priest will pay me and the church a tax, he can have him a bed warmer, as they called him, a mistress." And you say, what the lay people think about this? Hey, they loved it because they said, if he's living that way, we can live that way. And besides, if he's got a mistress, guess what? He won't be coming after our wives and daughters. And so they loved it that way. And theologically, they were saying all these things like a man, you buy all these indulgences and you can buy your way into heaven and you can buy your loved ones uh, out of purgatory. And Martin Luther, he started reading the book of Romans and Galatians and seeing how a man is justified by faith, faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone. And what he did, he wrote that 95 thesis document and he nailed it there to the church at Wittenberg. Now the church door was just the community bulletin board. That's where people posted things. But the courageous act was that Martin Luther was was tackling the corruption of the day and he was challenging the church to debates over doctrine and morality and the Reformation was born. What was Luther doing? What's Paul doing here? He's talking about you and I using spiritual weapons. Christian weapons. Things like prayer. Things like God's truth. As you and I live day to day in this dark world, folks, we need to suit up with that kind of armor. Now, second thing I want you to notice here is Christian perspective. Not only Christian weapons, but Christian perspective. Beginning there in verse 7, he says, "'Look at what is before your eyes. "'If anyone is confident that he is Christ, "'let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. "'For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, "'which the Lord gave for building you up, not for destroying you, "'I will not be ashamed.'" I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters for they say his letters are weighty and strong but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Paul is wanting them to think differently as believers. Don't just fight like the world with different weapons but you and I need to think differently as well. We need to have different values. How does the world look at things? What do they value? Well, what is it that these false teachers at Corinth were valuing? They were were valuing appearances and how things looked in the world. What do people still do today? They do the same, right? They do the same, The world values power and prestige. Somebody walks into the room who's supposed to be very important and everybody wants to get to know them and associate with them. Somebody takes a new job maybe just because it has a better income. You move into a bigger house just because it's a fancier house in a fancier neighborhood. That's just the way we operate in the world. Appearances mean everything. And there's this endless cycle of accumulation and entertainment. The Corinthians looked at Paul and they said, you know, his letters are weighty and strong and bold, but then he shows up in person and quite frankly, he doesn't look like much. And when he opens his mouth, he doesn't sound like much either. And what they were trying to do is capture the hearts of the members of the church at Corinth take the hearts away from the Apostle Paul and, and get the members following them instead. And those false teachers were boasting about their own human strengths and human gifts while they were putting Paul down. Paul said, you know what, if people want to play that game, I could play that game too. In Philippians 3 he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness that's found in the law, I was blameless. But then Paul goes on to say, what was gained to me I now count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Folks, he's wanting the Corinthians to get over looking at things the way the world looks at things. Stop valuing things by appearance. If you and I live our lives, we go about our life every day just judging things by worldly appearance, we're going to be led astray. We're going to be like the people of Israel in the Old Testament. When they told Samuel, uh, when they told Samuel, we want a king to rule over us, and God said, give him a king. Saul walked in the room and Saul was that proverbial tall, dark, and handsome. He stood a head taller than everybody else. And when they saw Saul, what did they say? They said, he's the man. He's the one that we want to be king over us. And Saul was a complete disaster and when God through Samuel told Saul he was taking the kingdom away from him and giving it to another and he told Samuel to go out and anoint a new king he directed Samuel to go down to the house of Jesse and Jesse paraded all of his sons out to, uh, to Samuel and everyone that, that Samuel saw he thought man he's got to be the one God said nope he's not the one next one to come he's got to be the one nope he's not the one he went through all of Jesse's sons and he said I don't know Understand, do you not have any more sons? And Jesse said, Yeah, I've got one more little boy, David. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even count in this lineup. In fact, I've got him out tending the sheep. And Samuel said, Go get him, we'll wait. And when David showed up on the scene, God said, He's the one. Anoint him. It wasn't by appearances. It wasn't by appearances. And the lesson here ladies and gentlemen is we don't need to view things the way the world does. Young man might want to marry a girl just because she's pretty and nice to look at. But she may not be a Christian. A man may want to go into business with another man, but that other man may not be a Christian either. And and if he goes into that business covenant with that other man, he's unequally yoked and it might turn out to be disastrous in the long run. Folks, is God trying to be mean to us? Is God trying to be stingy with us? No. God is trying to look after us and save us from trouble. From heartache. And so Paul is trying to get the Corinthians say, you need to start looking at things from God's perspective, not from the perspective of the world, not based on human appearances, not because she's pretty or he's rich or he's smart. What does God want? That's what matters. You and I need to have a Christian perspective. That's why Jesus said we're to lay up our treasure in heaven. Because the world values treasure on earth. They're living for the here and now. They're living for the temporal and what they can build up here and now. And in the long run, that doesn't count. And so again, I want you to hear what Paul's getting at. In this battling that we're engaged in every day, we need to take up Christian weapons, the armor God gives us, And we need to have a new perspective on life. Look at things the way God looks at things. And then thirdly, I want you to see Christian boasting. Christian boasting, if we were to begin at verse 13... And read all the way down through verse 17. Paul is talking here about boasting. He concludes that section by saying in verse 17, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Now I know immediately what somebody's going to think. They're going to think, Pastor, as Christians, we don't boast. Well, legitimately, we are to boast. We're to boast in the Lord. We're not like the world. We don't boast in ourselves and our own accomplishments. We don't say, look at me and what I've been able to do in life. But what do we say? We say, look at Jesus. I was lost and I was blind, but Jesus saved me. And he washed all my sins away Glory to God and we boast in Jesus Christ because there we were on that road to destruction that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. We were just like the rest of the world, dead in trespasses and sins. And in that condition, because of God's great love, He saved us. Not according to anything we've done, but by His grace. So folks, as Christians, we've got something to boast in, but it's not anything that we've done. It's all about Jesus. Paul says, we're not like others. What were these people at Corinth doing? These people, these false teachers were coming in at Corinth and they were trying to boast. They were, they were trying to undo and redo a lot of what Paul had done. And then they were trying to boast about, look at what we're able to do there. And, and Paul said, we don't have to go in where somebody else has labored. And try to take credit for their work. We we only take credit for what we've done. And and who are we anyway? Paul says, we're nobody. We're just servants of the Lord. And all we've done is come to you there at Corinth. And we've preached Jesus. And we've preached the Word of God. And we faithfully sowed the seed of the Word of God. And we've prayed. And God rose a church up out of the ashes there at Corinth. And Paul says we stand back there and look at now at what's happened at Corinth and all we can say is glory to God. God has done this. Now folks, let's be honest. Think about your own life. Where would you be if God hadn't saved you and blessed you? I just want you to think about your life right now. Think about how things could have been different. What if you would have never gone to church that day and heard the gospel and gotten saved? Or that friend that shared the gospel. What if that would have never happened? And, and you'd live like the rest of the world, gone out into the world, things in the world matter. Think of how different your life could be today. And look at your life now. Is there any, anyone among us here this morning that would not say glory to God? It's by His grace... I am what I am. You are what you are by His grace. You've been able to do what you've been able to do by His grace. You have the health that you have by His grace. You've been able to accomplish in life what you've been able to accomplish by His grace. It's like Jesus said in John 15, He's the vine, we're the branches. We are nothing without Him. Glory to God. And that's the attitude Paul is saying we need to live like in life. Men of the world go out here and they want to brag in appearances and and boast about what they've done. One thing I get so sick and tired of, I, I enjoy watching these NFL games. But I get so sick and tired of all this boasting and strutting and all that the players do these days. We're to be different. It's not about us. We are to live every day of our life in the humble gratitude before God that if it were not for Him, we'd be nothing and we'd be on our way to a devil's hell. And when we live like that, that changes the way we conduct ourselves and it changes the way we treat others. You see what he's saying here? And he closes this section by saying it's not the one who commends himself that's approved But the one whom the Lord commends Folks, when we stand before the Bema seat of Christ one day The judgment seat of Christ It's not going to matter a hill of beans what we've done Or what we think of ourselves What I think of you, what you think of me, what we think of ourselves, what others think of us, that's not going to matter. When we're standing before the bema seat of Christ one day, the judgment seat of Christ, giving an account of our lives to Him, the only thing that's going to matter is whether or not He says, well done, good and faithful servant. The whole world Can love me, the whole world can love you, the whole world can commend you and approve of you. But if you're a failure in God's sight, you're a failure. The whole world can hate you and disapprove of you and be against you, but God can be for you and commend you, you're a success. All that matters is God's judgment. So you see what Paul's saying here about Christians doing battle? We get up every day, our weapons are not of the flesh. We put on the spiritual armor that God's given us. We live with a different perspective. We don't live for the temporal, we live for the eternal. And then we conduct our lives as those who will give an account before God So any boasting we do is in Him, and we live our lives seeking His approval. And when we live that way, we live radically different than the world. Radically different. Christian battling. I wonder this morning... I may be speaking to a Christian who's going through some pretty serious battles in your life. You could be going through something with a mate. You could be going through something with a rebellious child. You could be going through something pretty bad at work. Specifically because of your Christian faith. And you're discouraged, you're frustrated, you feel like you're losing one step forward, two steps back. What you need to start doing every day, putting on the Christian armor. God's truth, righteousness, helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Living in God's strength. Turning that battle over to God. Letting God do what only He can do. Maybe there's some strongholds in your life. You've begun thinking like the man of the world thinks. And you need to put God's truth down alongside that stronghold. And let that stronghold come tumbling down. And live according to what God's word says about that situation. Maybe there's somebody else here It's not even in the Lord's army. You've never been converted. And perhaps for weeks or months now, the Holy Spirit's been tugging at your heart to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. I'd love to pray with you this morning. Together we can ask God to convert your soul that you'd be born again. Then you can be a soldier in His army. Maybe somebody else looking for a church home and you won't... Other soldiers in God's army you can link arm-in-arm with. Because we need each other in this battle. You come forward as well. Folks, what we see here is life in this world is not always easy. God never said it would be. He, He didn't compare this life. Once we become a Christian, He didn't compare this life To an amusement park. He compared it to a battlefield. You and I are engaged in battle. But. He wants us to win this battle. Even more so than we want to win it. He wants us to win it. And he'll be there to give you the strength. And the direction that you need. Let's pray. Father we thank you that there at the cross the Lord Jesus won for us the greatest battle of all the battle against sin when he took our sin and the wrath of God against sin and he died in our place Lord as believers in Jesus Christ Indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We need to see now that we're to live differently from the way we used to live in this world. When we lived in sin. When we enjoyed the darkness about us. We're to be different now. But God, we cannot do it. We cannot fight this battle. The Bible tells us we have an enemy. And in the flesh, we can't do it. But as believers, we don't have to. You live your life in and through us, and you give us the victory. If we will simply put on the armor that you give us and stay in communication with you and view things the way you want us to view things then we can experience victory God I pray for that man or woman right now right here sitting here and they're going through something in their life and it might be pretty heavy And they are discouraged. Lord, let them know that you're right there with them. Give them wisdom and strength. I pray for that one right now who's saying in his or her heart, I need to get in God's uh, army. I need to be saved. Lord, don't let them turn away. Don't let them say... I'll consider that another day. Draw them to yourself right now. Lord, help us to live victorious, even in this age. Knowing that it's not easy. But if we have Jesus, we have what we need. May we live for you, look at things the way you look at things, and give all the glory and honor to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.